Welcome. You are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. This recording is intended to be used solely by individuals with barriers to print. Thank you for joining us for Colorado Gardener. My name is Christy McGowan. For the birds. This gardener certainly is. By Diana Wells. This is from Green Prints. Winter 2022-2023 edition. In the two years I took to write my book, 100 Birds and How They Got Their Names, published by Algonquin Press, I had ample opportunity to think about the differences between birders and gardeners and the people in between who love both their gardens and the birds that visit them. Most of us know and are often somewhat intimidated by a real birder who gets up at dawn to make lists and can confidently identify the dozens of those little brown birds that look much the same to the rest of us. What was I doing writing a book about birds? I repeatedly asked myself. Was it a task for a garden writer? It's easy to find the names of flowers. They stay still and wait for you to identify them. Birds never stay still long enough for me to match them with their pictures in my bird books. Just because I am a gardener, however, I already loved birds and wanted them in my garden. And, as I studied them more, I came to realize that even if I was poor at naming them, I could provide a good place for them to live and thrive. Indeed, birds and birders need gardeners. True, not all birds are always welcome in our gardens. They can cause a lot of damage, as well as enchanting us. I value my garden more for being full of blackbirds than cherries, wrote Joseph Addison in 1712. And very frankly, give them fruit for their songs. A nice sentiment, but not easy to remember when all the new peas have been eaten overnight. It's hard to control birds. Nets are a bother. Scarecrows don't really scare crows. And inflatable owls and snakes don't work for very long. Birds are smart. They have to be to survive. And they need to eat constantly. So gardeners aren't going to love them all the time. But a garden without birds? Unthinkable. A cherry tree in bloom needs a robin singing in its branches, or its statement is half-made. Not to mention that birds will help you cleanse your trees of caterpillars and all noisome worms and flies. As William Lawson said in his 1618 book, A New Orchard and Garden. He also said that he had lost whole trees of fruit from birds eating the buds, 
and suggested shooting them with a musket, or chasing them with a tame sparrowhawk. Still, he concluded he would rather want their company than my fruit. Nowadays, although we enjoy growing fruit and vegetables, most of us aren't dependent on our own produce. We can afford to make our gardens places of refuge and relaxation, which surely include the presence of birds. But birds can't be brought to our gardens and planted there. They have to want to visit. And they often favor an environment that distresses tidy gardeners. Songbirds need untidy brush for shelter. Woodpeckers and flickers live where there are dead trees and branches. Mowed lawns satisfy few birds, especially if the grubs have been killed with insecticides. A puddle in the driveway may look untidy, but it provides water for bathing and drinking. Indeed, we may sometimes have to be worse gardeners if we want birds around. For myself, I learned about my garden as well as about birds when writing my book. Nowadays, I never, well, almost never, bug my husband to have the driveway patched. I never, almost never, fret about tangles of weedy brush or trees that need pruning. Although I'm still far from an expert on birds, at least I know I can provide a good place for them to live. And even if I can't identify every bird in my garden, I can appreciate the miracle of its presence. In the sixth book of the Aeneid, Virgil wrote, The descent into hell is easy. Facilis descensus averno. The word for hell, averno, means a place without birds. From the Greek a, without, and ornus, bird. Avernus, the entrance to hell, was a toxic Italian lake, the fumes from which were said to kill all birds. A place without birds would be a kind of hell. We need birds, and we need to help and know them as much as possible. What is a moss wall? If you're looking for an artful way to green up your living space without keeping plants alive, a moss wall might be the perfect choice. By Karuna Eberl. And this is from The Family Handyman. If you're looking for an artful way to green up your living space without keeping plants alive, a moss wall might be the perfect choice. A moss wall is like having a microcosmic primeval forest hanging in your living room. The lush green tapestry invokes feelings of calmness and mystery. It's also the hottest indoor plantscaping trend right now, says Jim Mumford, president and resident horticulturalist at Good Earth Plant Company in San Diego. The colors, shapes, and textures, he said. We were hooked after we made our first one. 
the possibilities for creating art using this natural product seem limitless. Whether you're DIYing a moss wall at home or buying one made by a pro, here's what you need to know to successfully bring nature's cushy greenery inside. What is a moss wall? A moss wall is a hanging wall art panel made primarily from preserved and dyed mosses and possibly other preserved plants, driftwood, and dried mushrooms. The most common mosses are dyed reindeer moss, actually lichen, whole moss, mood moss, and sheep moss. The concept probably came from Scandinavia, but rumors also link it to Buddhist monasteries in Asia. More recently, it appeared on wreaths and crosses in German cemeteries before making its way as art in our homes in North America. Moss walls are made from preserved moss. It's no longer alive. Its water content has been replaced with a non-toxic glycerin solution, so it still looks fluffy. Added food-grade dyes enhance color. When done right, a moss wall becomes a sort of organic fabric that can look convincingly alive. We had one client insist on having us trim a moss wall, as she claimed it was growing, said Mumford. What are the pros and cons of moss walls? Moss walls are the rage now because they require little maintenance and can be installed in many places where living walls or potted plants aren't practical. Some of their benefits include they require no light so they can be installed in dark rooms. They require no water. They only protrude two to four inches from the wall. They help dampen sound. They're lightweight for hanging. They are pest-free. They add a natural, beautiful, biophilic element to indoor space. They are works of art, like tapestries or paintings, with many possible colors and textures. The cons of moss walls. They cannot be used outdoors or in direct sunlight, or they will scorch and fade. They aren't alive, so they neither give off oxygen nor absorb carbon dioxide. They can be damaged or dry out with prolonged exposure to low humidity. They sometimes give off strong odor when new, which dissipates in a few days. Some fire marshals have unfairly targeted moss walls as a fire hazard, says Mumford, but they are no more flammable than an oil painting. The moss has been tested using standard and accepted testing procedures, and it passes. How to make a moss wall. Making a moss wall can be an affordable and creative endeavor. You'll need a backboard. This could be a wooden frame, cork board, plywood, or anything else glue will stick to. Glue. 
Wood glue, construction adhesive, or hot melt glue should all work. Test out your backboard glue combo to make sure it will hold before getting too deep into the project. Gloves. The moss contains dyes that might run as you handle it. Preserved moss. You can buy this at most plant and craft stores. Just make sure it's from sustainably grown and harvested plants and not wild sourced moss, which can greatly damage the local environment. To make a moss wall. One, collect some inspiring images to inspire and plan your design. Two, choose a backboard. Three, sketch out your pattern. Four, glue each piece of moss to the backboard. Depending on how quickly your glue dries, you can spread the glue across the backboard and then lay everything down, or glue each piece as you go. Five, gently lay something flat and heavy on top to make sure the moss sticks as it dries. How long does a moss wall last? Moss walls should last at least five years and probably much longer under the right conditions. To keep a moss wall in optimal shape, keep it out of direct sunlight. Don't put it near heating or air conditioning vents as the hot or cold dry air will hurt it. Don't hang it where it can be rained or splashed on or the colors might run. Maintain humidity between 45 and 65 percent the most comfortable range for us humans as well. If the humidity drops low and it gets crunchy dry, just raise the humidity and it will fluff right back up, said Mumford. Can I make a living moss wall? Perhaps, but it's a lot more complicated with a high chance of failure. Should it work, it would also require misting which can cause mold and other problems indoors. If you think you're buying living moss wall panels, look at the fine print. Nearly all are not actually alive, even though they're advertised that way. The Flower Shop. Learning about flowers, family, and life. By Jeremy Holmesley. And this is from Green Prince, Winter 2022-2023 edition. In 2018, I found myself working in a flower shop in upstate New York on Valentine's Day. I opened at 7 a.m. And at 11 a.m., in walks the doctor who had delivered my son less than 30 hours ago. I knew he was coming because I had scrawled his name on a piece of white tissue paper when he phoned in an order earlier in the day. A dozen white roses for his wife and two single roses as well. I extended to the doctor the tightly wrapped roses with baby's breath, leather leaf, alstromeria, and seeded eucalyptus. Hey, Dr. Doddard, how are you? Oh, hey, you're working here? Of course, he didn't remember my name. Yes, sir, came straight here from the hospital this morning. Ah, did you? Well, okay. 
He responded in a gentle South African accent. Had to for Valentine's, I'm sure. I'm sure. Yes, sir. The machine never stops. It really never does, does it? He went on with his day, as did I. My shift ended at five, and I returned to the hospital that night. My wife, Ashley, was recovering from an emergency C-section two days ago, and a balloon hovering over her head declared, It's a boy. Our son, Roan, slept nearby in a clear plastic tub. Two dish gardens sat on a table beside Ashley's bed, gifts from well-wishing family members. The machine never stops, does it? No more days off. That's one we started saying a while back. Certainly not now for us as new parents, and not for me, working at a flower shop during Valentine's Day. Ashley landed this three days a week florist job two months earlier. The owner, a longtime family friend, hired her knowing she was pregnant. And at first he was mostly just doing us a favor. Because I had the free time, I offered to fill in for Ashley during her maternity leave. I keep her job on ice for her as long as she needed. That way, as soon as she was ready, she could come back to work. Otherwise, he would have to hire a real replacement. Kevin, the owner, liked the idea and agreed to give it a go. I ended up working there three months in total, covering three major holidays, through Rowan being born and my first true-to-form North Country winter. Everyone else had been working at the flower shop for years. I started in receiving and found it amazing. I should have known, but people have formed entire business enterprises shipping plant matter. Delicate, fragile, thirsty cargo, such as boxes of 48 or more, Liberty Red Roses, bound more tightly together than the first cutting hay bale. I was told to cut open each box with a razor knife, with its long chipped and rusted blade and cracked wooden grip. Take out the bundles of 12 and cut the base of the stems quickly and at an angle to ensure that the roses get water. Cut them flat and they'd sit flush with the bottom of the bucket and couldn't drink. And roses get thirsty. Bunky no lie, that was his name, trained me. His hair was bowl cut, and he played guitar on the weekends in a band. During the week, he cuts flowers. He knows which ones get hungry and which ones get thirsty, or both. And Bunky knows the names of every delivery guy, the vendors, and the companies. He even knows them by the color of their boxes all from memory. Soon, Kevin put me in the front end of the shop, which is very much like being in charge of the entrance and exit of a tunnel, with no responsibility for the goings-on in between. Four floral designers worked in the tunnel, the basement. Kevin, the owner, Lisa, 
Marilyn and Jenny. Within two weeks, I was running, by myself, the front end of a well-established, more-than-a-decade-old floral enterprise owned by a local legend. Within three weeks, I had the keys, and I was opening the shop. The shop was busy, and the work was hard. There were couples' weddings and loved ones' funerals. Delivery orders taken by phone to churches I didn't know on roads I'd never heard of. But I was always polite. I listened, asked questions, and learned. And I said, yes, ma'am, and yes, sir, every single time, even when most people would have said no. The second major aspect of a flower shop, once you have a storefront full of plants, is providing delivery services. We're talking restaurants and car dealerships, military bases and airports. You need clearance for some of this stuff. And it's important because you're delivering someone's heart and soul to someone they love. They majorly care how that process plays out. One innocent accident, and we're talking irreparable damage. Funerals, especially. You're walking someone through a process that florally represents their grief. Before I started opening, Kevin would arrive at the shop at 7 a.m., feed Shadow, the store cat, flip on the lights, boot the computer system, and turn the open sign by 9 a.m. But the phone started ringing about 8.30 almost every day. A lot of church people buy flowers, and they keep church hours. Kevin would stay there until 7 or 8 at night sometimes, depending on the season. We'd get rashes of weddings, brides with hands on their hips and elbows bent, grooms figuring their phones and humming so often. I don't know how Kevin did it, seriously. Shipping and designing and reshipping the only product even more sensitive than glass. Cut flowers, rose bowls, baskets, vase arrangements, cakes, casket sprays. What an unending production. I loved the plants. I loved that the one job that had me trapped indoors in a store all day was still a room filled with living, breathing, sunshine-eating things. But I, like them, was made to be outside. It was where I was supposed to be. And no matter how much time I spent away from the farm, I am bound to it like a twining vine. I was ready to sweat in the sun stink like a barn, and knock my boots off at the doorstep again. My time at Sherwood Florist, no lie, that is the name, tingled with providence and serendipity. My little son had just entered the world, and I had to look at myself as a father for the first time in the eyes of a helpless child. Handing a single rose stem to a young boy as he clumsily wrote the word love on a little card against the counter, and the dozens of other times I helped people share love through plants every day, kept reminding me what's truly important. My entire time at the flower shop felt like I was in a classroom, learning about flowers and people and life. And, that Valentine's Day, handing 14 roses to the man who had just the day before handed me my son for the first time, 
I never could have imagined it. That says it all. Thank you for joining us for Colorado Gardener. My name is Christy McGowan. If you enjoyed this program, please register for our free services at www.aincolorado.org or by calling 303-786-7777.